On this episode, I interviewed Nora Fink, owner of Nora Fink Personal Styling. I love how clear she is about how to build a business and why you should only take a loan from yourself. Let's listen. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Welcome, Nora Fink. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Is this your first podcast? Yes. And do you listen to podcasts? Yes. Do you love them? I do. Awesome. Okay, so you're going to be a pro here today. Oh, I'm, I'm ready. I know you are. I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. I can't wait. Okay, girl, tell me, give us first a little bit of background about you, um, where you're from, what you do, that kind of stuff. Um, well, my name is Nora Fink, and I'm the owner of Nora Fink Personal Styling. I grew up in Southern Kentucky in Bowling Green. I came to Xavier for college just wanted to move to New York City where I met my husband and we happened to move back to Cincinnati. So even though I'm not a native Cincinnati, I'm Cincinnatian, I've been here for 24 years. Okay, so after Xavier, you moved to New York. Yes. Do you work in fashion when you moved to yes, New York? Yes, I was in the executive training program at Bloomingdale's, which is um, their program where you do all aspects of executive retail, buying, management, operations, and then you eventually settle in your your area of choice. And did you always know that you wanted to be a stylist? No. Did you think you wanted to be a fashion designer? No. What did you want? What did you think? I think I, I thought I wanted to be a buyer. Okay. Because I really like numbers and money more than clothes. So I never, I never ever thought I would be a stylist. What happened is when my husband and I, or we were dating at the time, moved to Cincinnati, there was not a comparable job. Okay. So I pounded the pavement and he was like, I think you'd like marketing. So I pounded the pavement to get a marketing job. And I first worked at Starkist okay. where I had the most amazing bosses and they taught me like classic marketing. Then um, I worked at a startup for a little bit um, just as a consultant. And then I worked at Sara Lee, which was also another classical marketing company. Okay. And then what happened from there is I was young and I had free time and I had just moved from New York. So anytime there was an artsy job or an artsy opportunity, I volunteered to do it. Okay. Whether it was a food photo shoot, a commercial, a PR event, anything. And how I got into styling is there is a food photographer on Central Parkway. Um, great, great subject for your podcast. Okay. And he is um, very low key, but he's one of the best food photographers in the whole in the whole City. country, country, maybe the world. Really. And he, I, our photo shoots would be done with him, and I would style the sets and the props for the food photo shoots. And then what happened is he asked me to start taking vacation days to style other people's photo shoots. Wow. But I didn't have that many vacation days. So <laughs> I quickly ran out of those. And I came home one day and um, I told my husband, I said, hey, I, I'm getting these opportunities. And P.S., I want to go to France and learn French for a month. Stop it. Uh-huh. Why? I just Why did. I just, just felt did. like okay. it. Okay. Okay. And um, I, there was this school in the south of France, and I was like, "Let's just go." So, I told my husband, "He's like, yeah, just quit your job and go." So I could only contact my husband from a payphone, which 
I think more marriages would work out if you can only contact your <laughs> husband from a payphone. And um, I learned French. Like, I came home, I could speak French. Wow. And then what happened was, from there, there was a woman who had worked at the photo studio. Okay. And was now a stylist, a hair and makeup and wardrobe stylist in Columbus. And she got an opportunity to style John Kasich's Heartland show on Fox News. Okay. Except it was live on Saturday nights. And so she wanted to take the job, but she couldn't commit to every Saturday night of a live TV show. So she asked me if I would split it with her. And I and I and my motto, which we'll get to in a little bit, is I always say yes. And then I get to my car and say, holy shit, what have I just done? <laughs> so then I did the show with Amy in Columbus. And what happened is all his guests were business people from the heartland, from Ohio. So I met them on the show, yes. and then they would have opportunities at their own companies. So then they would contact myself or Amy to go style them at their companies. So that's how I started working at Fifth Third and Kroger and P&G. And um, one thing led to another, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. Talking about um, failing forward, when I when my styling business, my personal styling business got so big that I just couldn't manage all the clients we had without a good process and a place for them to come try the show, the clothes on, pardon me. Um, what we had previously done is we would do people's personal shopping, meet them in their home, kind of go through their closet, see what they had, do all the shopping and bring it back to them. Okay. Well, that, there were two problems with that. One is we were constantly moving merchandise around. It was exhausting. Number two, we realized that people who would hire us don't want a typical shopping experience. They want a shopping experience that doesn't exist. Okay. They want to come to a fancy place. And your home is not is not correct. It seems convenient. It's just doesn't. There's put different energy at your home yes. that maybe you're looking for in another space, especially if you're looking if you want to look at yourself with a new lens, right? Exactly. And um, your home's too practical. It's mm-hmm. so. What I realized is I needed to make a space that did not exist. So back to the the failing forward. I studied probably for six months. I have notebooks of every single thing I think was wrong with shopping. Okay. Meaning they ask you to open a credit card at the register. You have to carry your own things. Um, My biggie that I like would just ruminate on and ruminate on and ruminate on is that your purchase decision is made in the dressing room, but that's where the least amount of investment goes into a store. Like, it makes me crazed. Like, I think a store should be 500 square feet and the dressing room should be 50,000 square feet. So what I did is I flip-flopped the model. So our showroom is, you know, by appointment only for our clients, but the whole showroom is a dressing room. Okay, why do you think, though, the dressing room should be bigger? Because don't you need space for all the clothes? And then if I'm trying on, do I need that much space to try clothes on? You want to step back from the mirror. You want different lightings. You want natural sunlight. Like, every single dressing room has no natural light. So, when... Oh, right, right. Okay, so when I try something on there, do I also get the time to feel it, to walk around in it, to hang out? Yes. 
and maybe sit in a different chair sit in a different chair we have incandescent lighting sunlight and fluorescent light in the showroom so you just see how you look and then also i i took everything down to even the billing process like you do not pay for things at the showroom you take it all home you sit with it try it on with your own things and then we send you an invoice later the other thing we do is i've realized that I mean, 10,000 hours have gone into this, Um, (laughs) is that people, there is no reason, everyone should look great. In a perfect bell curve, 3% of people should be extremely well-dressed, and 3% of people should look like a hot mess. (laughs) Everybody else should look pretty good. Right. That does not happen. Why? And it is not for lack of product. It has everything to do with your concept of money and your relationship with money and how you were raised. Interesting. That is it. Because there is product out there. There's too much product. So does it also have to do with the fact that like somebody else might might have a better eye for what looks good on me? Definitely definitely. But I think What's there's there. I think there's people out there that can do that as well as, as we can. One thing we do is you have to you get a PDF with your with a what to expect PDF that outlines the entire styling process as well as your homework before we get to your house. And one of the things is setting a budget. So what we do is you don't know, unless it happens to be on the tag, you don't know the prices of anything. Okay. But we assure you we have shopped to your budget because what we've found is there's some people in the world that only will buy things if they're really inexpensive and on sale and there's only people that there's other people that only want the best. Right. So we don't let you see the price because we want you to love the garment. Interesting. Not the price. And people allow you to do that. Tons, too many. No, I mean not too many. We have a great time but right, right. because it works and we tell people like we say we have our own clothes. You you have to love this for you. You don't have to love this because we like it. You have to love this piece. And it's funny. You'll know by somebody's body language. They kind of shimmy and mm-hmm. they look at themselves from the back. They smile. They yes. keep looking at, at themselves. And we're like, every single piece, you have to like as much as that one. Okay, here's a question for you. So yep. I'm an impulsive buyer, yes. right? I've got a party tomorrow. I buy something tomorrow or maybe tonight if I'm lucky. Okay. okay. I like it. I wear it one time. It fits a need, and then it sits in my closet. It, that's it's really common. I I don't believe in buying for an occasion. That's why we always go to someone's home first okay. because people think they have nothing good. And right. we always say we're not a reality TV show. We're not here to throw away all your things and make you cry. <laughs> <laughs> what not to wear? Uh-huh. So people beg us to throw things away. We're like we're not throwing this away. This is good stuff. Yeah, we. I believe that most people have really good things in their closet. They've just, to your point, either bought it for one occasion and they're kind of mind-locked yeah. into that occasion. Yes. Or it, it's so specialized. They brought they bought something that can't be reinvented either way. So what, either more casually or more formal. So what we try to do when we um, buy things for people is we always say no outliers. There can't be any outliers. It has to be only things that can be constantly reinvented and if it's over $100, it has to be something that has a little bit of longevity to it. When, when we were talking about this episode, you said, you know, I haven't had a whole lot of failures at work, but I've learned from other people's failures. So can you share a little, a couple more of those, especially for people that are starting a business or who have a business? Yes. So um, 
I, I mean, I really keep a lot of notebooks of things I observe. Grow as you have money and clients. Start very small, like teeny. And it just does that you can focus on your business because you're not so stressed. And I really, 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 really discourage people from taking a small business loan or money from family or friends. You just simply treat your own money differently. And really, I think if you believe in your idea enough and you believe in yourself enough, you'll you'll get that seed capital on your own. So you said for your showroom, you took a loan out from yourself. From right? myself. I didn't even take it from my family, like my my nuclear husband and children. I like it's my my own old money that I just had in an account because I was like, this is this is my thing. I don't want to put this on anyone else. And then, um, like I had, I wrote terms to pay myself back. <laughs> like I'm so like I'm like oh, my God. books are clean. Um, so I wrote terms to pay myself back. And then, um, one thing people do with a small business is they over infrastructure and they over build out. And so, I'm about high. Quick cash flow, low overhead, yep. and high cash reserves. I love that. Those are my three. That's my trifecta. Good cash flow. What was the second one? Good cash flow, low overhead, yes, and high cash reserves. Okay. And if you've if you've got that, you just sleep like a little baby. One of the process improvements that you taught me was you figured out a way to shop for clothing. Because I believe that that was uh, that used to be a really big challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Talk a little bit about how you buy the clothing and what was your process improvement around that. Okay. So what what we had to do is number one, um, we, Melissa and I had to come up with a new process where we split up. We used to ha- go to the appointments together, and we just we just are running out of time, and we were booking out too many months. So we made it so that. I always go to the first visit, and then Melissa can do shopping and subsequent visits, but we we do it that way. That was one thing we had to do. The other thing we did is um, we realized that Cincinnatians are ready for ultra-premium designer clothes. They're not ready for ultra-premium designer prices, okay. which is fine, because back to my Bloomingdale's days, those clothes are out there. So what we will do is to get our clients really special designer pieces, we have a network of boutiques around the country where we buy their old merchandise. Okay. And it's a win-win because they're, they have to sit on it and it ties up their cash because they don't want to have 80 and 90% off sales because it trains their customer to, to wait them out. Yeah. So then what we do, IE or EG is my friend, Alicia taught me. Yes. We swoop in because we have high cash reserves and buy um, their old stock. Okay. Uh, how did you figure out how to do that? And how did you find the boutiques? Just, how did you present that to oh, them? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I used the old fashioned phone. <laughs> Nobody calls anymore. I just call places. You and, did. And I say, here's the deal. This is what we do. And people are like, are you kidding that you just called and asked that? You're like, no. And they're like, get it done, baby. And they are thrilled. We're all thrilled. Everyone's thrilled. And one of the main reasons is, is that Cincinnati, I would say Boston, I would say San Francisco, there are only a few cities that still have a very formal work culture dress. Okay. So what happens is in other cities, 
a boutique needs to buy a collection yes. so that their store doesn't look like it's full of jeans and t-shirts. And what might happen in a lot of times is the more formal pieces like trousers or blouses or jackets are what's left. Okay. So they need to buy a full collection, but their the dressed the work dress code in their city is not quite as formal as ours are. Okay. So those pieces are available. So those are what those are the things that you can snag up and get. Yes. And then we can pass that savings on to our clients. Okay. And then what do you do with your leftover inventory? Um, well, one thing we manage it really well, tightly, like very tightly. Um, the because way you know what you're looking for. Because I know what I'm looking for, and we also, like, I'm such a stickler. We have, I can't remember the number. Melissa knows, but we have X number of hangers, and if the hangers are full, we're full. Really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you won't buy uh, in bulk from these boutiques. You're ju- you will just go. You are targeted, and you know exactly what you're yes. going to buy from them. Like a couple. How are, do you keep track of this? Is this Excel spreadsheet? Um, okay, that like, what is do you use. It's Excel, and okay. that is tricky. I met with our accountant several times, and she actually came to the showroom, and we walked her through the process because we have single pieces. Mm-hmm. We don't have size runs of things because you know one of our. Um, benefits why you want it is so that you don't look like everybody else so we only have one of everything so it's very manual i would say that if we have an opportunity for improvement that is the the spot yeah 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 yeah. what else can you teach others about the failures that you've seen that you incorporated with the biz um i would i would say that this is just life and business and it's kind of a, a state of people right now is people not taking personal responsibility Say more about that. I just, everything is my fault. It's my business. Mm-hmm. It's my fault. And I'm, and I, and I, shit that hasn't happened yet is my fault. Like, I just take responsibility. Yeah. And I just fix it. Yeah. And I think there's like, well. And to me, you know what that is, girl? It's failing forward, baby. Right? Yeah. I mean, isn't it in simplest terms? Yeah. Isn't that I, what failing forward's about? And I just think, I don't. I think there's become a cultural thing of like, well, the economy was really bad or, well, you know, um, they were doing construction on the street where our business is. No, maybe you just didn't run it right. Or maybe you invested in an idea that nobody wanted. It happens all the time. Um, I'll blame Xavier and my parents for that. But it is like I just hammered personal responsibility. And I think people and entities can spend a lot of time. unnecessary time blaming or figuring out who who did something or didn't do something where I just take responsibility no matter who did it I take responsibility okay so if I could peel back that onion a little bit so taking that personal responsibility you said maybe I learned that from Xavier maybe your parents I am and we were giggling about that but seriously how do you teach that how do you learn that um I think I think my the way my parents parented me, and I also so I went to Catholic grade school. I went to a Catholic like real outdoors summer camp, and then I went to Xavier twice. And I think you a need to choose your peer group wisely mm-hmm. of people who are going to hold you accountable. And I think you you slow down and stop the presses and say, okay, we're going to go back and do that again. Yep. You know what? I would like you to go walk back in that store and um, apologize, 
that we drop the milk or whatever. Like, we're just going to stop and we're going to redo it. Yeah. I love this um, concept of choose your peer group um, wisely. I was listening to a guy a couple weeks ago and he said he has like five advisors. Okay. These are the people in his life who keep him on check, who hold him accountable, who have the same values and similar goals as he does. And if one of them falls off, like, and they aren't still living the life that he wants to live, that person's gone. It it is. I was like, whoa! But I'm going to tell you something. This guy is. He is making change in our community, and he needs that support in order to do that. And that's how I felt. Like we don't have any family here. It's just us. my husband's family's in New York, and mine's in Kentucky. My sister's in Wisconsin, and so I need, I need my my community to be an extension of my family. Um, an example of that is when I was planning the showroom I asked probably about 10 or 10 or so women that I really respected I wasn't even that close to some of them I just really respected them yeah and I went over the idea with them and I said do not tell me what's right with it tell me everything that's wrong with it mm-hmm. I do have to say though I I love personal criticism <laughs> okay not everybody can handle no, that though. and I'm very hard to be friends with I think <laughs> but um, no you're not I I like, like, I got one shot at this, like just one shot at this life. And I just love every single day. And I don't want to do idiotic things that are harmful to people or myself or just at at the worst apathetic. Like that would be, if I was just an apathetic person, I would be disgusted with myself. Yeah. So I'm very, I just feel extremely lucky. And that makes me also want to give back to the community in one way is by being a good business person. Mm-hmm. Like I totally, I want to, you know, bring a meaningful, pretty business to old Montgomery. That's where our showroom happens to be. You know, I want to be civically engaged because I feel that my clients believed in me enough to become a client and I owe it to them to be a good business person. Yeah. Thanks Nora for my coming. pleasure. <laughs> I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, Anna Bolke, our producer, and the incredible team at Gwyn Sound. If you liked this episode, please, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and write a review. Join me on the next episode when I speak with Kirk Perry. We talk about his incredible professional and personal journey that led him from the highest ranks at Procter & Gamble to his current position at Google, where he is president of Brand Solutions. I have to tell you, this is one of my all-time favorite episodes. I hope you love it as much as I do.